no matter who you are, and no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Yes, glad you guys are here. Thank you. So I prepared for this talk over the last couple of weeks, and I went back and forth between two topics and actually have an entire other thing written that I was all of the things that I removed from this talk. And, and it could go for maybe two other classes. But I was sort of struck by this idea of truth, right? And then I gave it up, because what I realized was truth is really hard. And there's actually very little that we can sort of nail down as absolute truth. And it kind of got me dizzy. I was beginning to feel like these philosophers who go down these spiral thinking and they never really arrive at an answer and you're reading it in an interpreted language and it's, it's dizzying. So instead of truth, I landed on hope. I felt like hope is sort of an active word, one that we can sort of abide in. And I found, of course, Emily Dickinson. Hope is that thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Ultimately, I found hope to be a little more solid than truth, like something I could kind of grasp, whereas I couldn't find a truth I could grasp. There are dealers of lots of things in the world. I bet we can think of a few. There's drug dealers. There's arms dealers. There are used car dealers. There are fake Rolex watch dealers. Apparently, they come to barber shops, <laughs> open their coats. I got you. I got you what you need. So I wondered if we, just kind of the ordinary mystics in this class, could become hope dealers. And what might that mean? I want to clear up a little bit about how I'm defining hope, because I'm not talking about the hope that you're like, oh, I hope I'm not late, and you're already 15 minutes late. Or I hope I don't die someday. We will, as Bill likes to frequently remind us all die. Um, I hope it doesn't rain. We live in Houston. It could rain on a perfectly sunny, clear day, and our hopes would have died. <laughs> but I'm talking about a kind of hope that is maybe a little bit more grown up, a little bit more mature, a little bit more like holding despair with hope anyway, and maybe being determined to keep pressing on even when things around us seem hopeless. So that's the kind of hope I want to talk about. And uh, while I was doing this, poetry just kept finding me. So I'm interspersing this talk with a lot of poetry. In Buddhism, there's a difference between attachment and commitment. Attachment is when we get gripped to something, when we get fixed on an outcome, and we want it to go that way. I'm sure that everyone in this room can relate to that, like it must go this way. And when it doesn't go that way, we often can feel angry, upset, frustrated, or hopeless. The sort of, I don't want to say opposite, but the, 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 the other side of attachment is commitment. And commitment is when you sort of stay loosely fixed to an outcome, not exactly fixed to an outcome, but you stay on a path with a bigger picture in mind. So we've heard of this idea of non-attachment in Buddhism. When they talk about non-attachment, what they mean is staying committed to sort of a bigger picture without being attached to the way it goes. Make sense? I thought of the Tibetan Buddhists who grain by grain by grain of sand make the mandalas. Have you all seen those at the Manil collection? 
uh, they have come a couple of years. Uh, the last one I saw was maybe three years ago. And then what do they do? They wipe it all away after they're done. That's non-attachment. So it's the process that they stay committed to, but they're not attached to it being fixed. And last week I was in Mexico, which was awesome. Um, it was sunny and warm, and I was in a bathing suit on the beach, not to give you any visuals, but, <laughs> but it was, it, every morning these guys, young and old, would come to the beach and rake the seaweed. They'd rake and rake and rake the seaweed. Not even an hour later, the seaweed is back. But they were gone for the morning because they just work in the morning, maybe between like five and nine. And the next morning, they come back and they rake and rake and rake the seaweed. Same thing. They do it anyway. That's, there's a certain kind of non-attachment in that behavior. And even maybe a certain kind of hope in that we do it nevertheless. So even when things are hard, we hope. As I wrote about this, as I said, I kept having encounters with poetry. And poetry to me is kind of represents a, a form of creativity that is able to hold both silences, a lot of pauses, how we read it, and a lot of emotional depth. Sandra Cisneros, who's an author, said, poetry is shamanic. It transforms grief into light. It's a vehicle for truth. It is apocalyptic in that it uncovers and illuminates and instills hope. To turn toward this kind of grown-up, real-deal hope that I'm talking about, we kind of first have to recognize that something ain't right. This is actually one of my favorite poems. I seem to turn to it a lot. Hafiz, the mystic, says, first, the fish needs to say, something ain't right about this camel ride and I am feeling so damn thirsty. <laughs> so why did I choose hope over truth? Can anyone tell me what color these eggs are, roughly? <laughs> You're right, all I have to do is read this slide. It says, Holly, light brown with black spots. You are correct, good reading. <laughs> so we can more or less agree that these, these eggs are light brown with black spots, yes? These are the same eggs seen through a bird's eye. They're not light brown with black spots. And the next picture is not eggs, but if a snake were looking at an egg, they would be seeing them in infrared vision, heat vision. What color are the eggs now? And if an insect was looking at something, they would see it like the flower to my left, your right, in UV vision. An insect lives in an ultraviolet garden. So we can see now, I've just shown you four ways of seeing. There's no single one that's true. There's no single color now that we can arrive at that is the color of those original eggs. So what's another truth that we could maybe land on that's simpler? The Earth is round. M most of us believe that. There are definitely still some flat earthers, and but most of us have believed that, trust that the earth is round. Yeah, a ball is round. This is in my bag of tricks. We can agree on that? Yeah, a ball is round. These two things are round, and it's what helps things move through space in an elliptical fashion, their roundness. But, turns out, scientists actually think the earth looks like this. It's not perfectly round. It does move in an elliptical fashion, but it also wobbles as it goes, maybe because of that not perfectly round shape. 
So, and a ball can look like this, right? What would we tell people visiting our planet about roundness or balls or spheres if they had no context for what round is? We would say this is round and a ball is round, but this is a ball and it's not exactly round. We would say the Earth is round, but not exactly. So again, truth is really hard to come by. A perfect circle doesn't even exist in nature, but it's considered the perfect shape as it has no end and no beginning. It's the closest approximation we have to wholeness. Jung talks a lot about circles in dream work and how the circle or the mandala is the dreamer's hope for wholeness. And the singer-songwriter Natalie Merchant wrote about circles. I dreamed of a circle. I was thinking about singing this for y'all, but I don't think you want that. I dreamed of a circle round, and in that circle I had made were all the worlds unformed and unborn yet. We're told mathematics is a universal language, right? That surely with math we can arrive at some truths. It's the giver of answers. But even the simplest math can stump us. The other day I was helping my, uh, one of my third grade sons with homework. This is fairly straightforward, easy math. I, you know, I passed third grade math. I went to college. I went to get a graduate degree. I'm working on a postdoc or a doctorate. I, I passed third grade math. Surely, I understand that fractions, which are also called real numbers or rational numbers, are easy. But he was struggling with one fourth plus one fourth. He insisted it was two, and he wouldn't have it that it was any other way. And you cannot along with this. He's, no, Bobby, you just don't know how my teacher wanted me to do it. One-fourth plus one-fourth is two. I'm like, baby, no, it's not. It's not two. And there's no other way to see this. And he, you know, we're on the three or four go-rounds of, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right. And he's throwing his pencil, and sometimes he breaks it in half, and he's crumpling his paper, and he's kicking the counter. And I'm like, it's not two. So... He was seeing it, oh, by the way, if you need a spiritual practice that is helping you work on patience, please, Monday through Friday, my house, 3.30 to 4.30, it's an hour, and you will leave, like, totally transformed, I promise. <laughs> it's a guaranteed. Something in you will shift. You'll either say, I never want to do that again, or I'm going back for more, and then I'll be over there drinking an early cocktail, watching you suffer. <laughs> Anyways, so we know one-fourth plus one-fourth is two-fourths or one half, right? That's absolute. But let me show you how his mind was working. You take one-fourth of a pizza plus one-fourth of a pizza, and you have two pieces. He's right. And his mind was working abstractly, but he was right. He, <laughs> you see why I didn't go to truth for this? A dizzying question that philosophers, theologians, and scientists have spent a lot of time on are, what came before the Big Bang? What was first? Was God preeminent? Was there a God before the, pre before the Big Bang? Aristotle called God the unmoved mover. When Genesis says, God is the soupiness or fathomless void from which everything else emerged. Or was emergence spontaneous and unavoidable based on the heating up of the atoms that apparently caused the Big Bang? It's a circular kind of inquiry, one that we can't land on. Nobody has the answer to what came first. It's a turtles all the way down kind of problem, right? The one that says that the earth is on the back of a turtle and what's, we never know where that first turtle goes. 
Philosophy and science look for reason where maybe there is no reason, where maybe we're looking to understand things. We think about all of the things going on today, all of the sexism, classism, racism, wars, etc., and hope actually seems entirely unreasonable. But I don't know that I think we have a choice. It's becoming more my opinion that I think we're kind of wired to hope and that maybe even choosing to stay alive is actually a process of being in hope. Different than philosophy, science not only is looking for reason, but it's looking for answers to the mysteries. It's seeking truths. It's seeking things that we can agree on. Physics shows us, however, that in a vacuum, neutrinos begin to form, and they start to create matter. So a vacuum is supposedly empty space. That actually then shows us that there's no such thing as empty space. There's no such thing as absolute nothingness. So absolute nothingness didn't exist before everything else. We just don't know what did. And the mystic, in a heightened state of meditation, reaches a state where he says, there exists absolutely nothing, and I am part of everything. I, there exists absolutely nothing, and I am part of everything. Mysticism is a non-dual truth. God is everything, they say, as well as nothing. The mere idea of God, I think, is immensely hopeful. Probably every single one of us has a different definition for God. I don't believe in the God you think I'm talking about, but and you might not even believe in the God that you think I'm talking about. I don't believe in the God that I was raised with. My idea of it is cur it's currently evolving, it's changing, it's emerging. It's in process, as we are. We, too, are currently evolving, changing, and transforming. To me, God is this, kind of more of this awesome cosmos that we live in. This is a photo from the Hubble telescope. This exists. That's so cool. Some, God looks like this, the Michelangelo version of the creator or of the creation. To others, a current artist's rendition of what God might look like. There's a whole host of things in between. Hope is kind of a verb and an action. Mary Daly actually says the same thing about God, that God is a verb. To hope is also an action, a verb. When I think about um, the poetry that found me, I loved this one. I have a thousand brilliant lies, Hafiz writes, for the question, how are you? I have a thousand brilliant lies for the question, what is God? If you think that the truth can be known from words, if you think that the sun and the ocean can pass through that tiny opening called the mouth, someone should start laughing. Oh, someone should start wildly laughing. A couple of weeks ago, Bill and I proposed that maybe the mystics, poets, and artists provide an inroad towards truth, that maybe this ability to create something from nothing, so to speak, is an, a, a kind of pursuit of hope or of belief or of transformation. The mystic knows that the universe is not composed of dead matter, but is, on the contrary, a living presence. The mystic becomes conscious in the self of eternal life. Said another way, it's less an attachment to a place of eternity, a place of eternal life, than it is knowing that all of us here are part of a process of eternity. So in that way, we are part of eternal life. Thou art that, the Hindu mystics say. Thou art thyself, the object of thy search, the voice unbroken. 
So drop all the thou's and arts and thy's, and it's basically saying you are what you seek, and there you will find everything. I have heard theologian Matthew Fox, he lives, he's based in Seattle, and um, is the editor or, or runs the website Progressing Spirit. I've heard him say we need to rescue Jesus from Christianity. I think what he means is we need to learn to hear these kinds of words in the teachings of Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if Jesus is out there like, y'all, I cannot save all of you. That's not my job. I'm here to show you that the kingdom is here, that it's in you, that you are what you seek. Jesus was, as Bill frequently reminds us, a Jewish mystic. Many believe the primary way to experience the sacred is through silence and creativity. Physicists say there's no such thing as absolute science, that even a deaf person can hear something. It may be like a wash, like a whoosh, but that there's no absolute silence. Or as the mystic Kabir wrote, God is the breath inside the breath inside the breath. Silence is in the pause between the pause. Contemplation gives us the access to this infinite grandeur by helping us see beyond and within. The book, The Giver, that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, some of you said you had read it, um, is about a little boy learning to see beyond, learning to see what is reality. And it's a struggle. It breaks him wide open. I mean, he is wrenched with pain about what is going on in the real world that he had been so protected from. Some of us might know the, the story of the Buddha who was a nobleman's son named Siddhartha before he was transformed. He had no idea of suffering or pain or death or illness. And when he saw it, he was in despair. But like the little boy and the giver, they were also exposed to hope. Seeing despair allowed them also to find hope. And I, I think there's probably a whole lot more to say about this, but I think hope and despair are actually pretty, pretty tightly knit. Without one, we can't know the other. So the whole universe is in a constant state of creativity, which is why it's hard to nail down a singular truth. But this creativity is hopeful, I think. Our lives come from it, and we can choose to perpetuate it. Rumi writes, don't go away, come near. Don't be faithless, be faithful. Find the antidote in the venom. Come to the root of the root of yourself. You are born from the children of God's creation, but you have fixed your sight too low. How can you be happy? Come, return to the root of the root of yourself. Although you are a talisman protecting a treasure, you are also the mine. Open your hidden eyes and come to the root of the root of yourself. You were born from a ray of God's majesty and have the blessings of a good star. Why suffer at the hands of things that don't exist? Come, return to the root of the root of yourself. I think what that's saying is when we bring forth our innermost beings, the creative aspect of us, I don't mean you all have to be artists, just what is it in you that needs to be known? These are also paradoxically, so it could be the smallest thing, but this is also our most expansive aspect, the thing that, that, that widens us to, to reality and to experience. It's a form of hope, and it might be the least absurd thing we can do, is to live from that place. Maybe it's exactly what we're meant to do as humans. Like the universe, as I said, our imaginations are continually expanding. Both are boundless and they are immeasurable. All the, I was marveling today, we were watching a crane 
disassemble the scaffolding, I think. And I just kind of had this moment of like, we create crazy things. How did we come up with a crane and scaffolding? And you know, like, that's how creative we are. That's how creative the universe is, and we're just an aspect of that. The stuff of the universe, carbon, sunlight, stardust, is within you. And look around, you are also within it. Here we are. I find this incredibly hopeful and really rather miraculous that we're here at all. Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired magazine, some of you might read it, puts out the idea that maybe the universe is a more like a question. And we are one answer to that question. It's more of a participatory relationship we enter into with life, an agreement, sort of. We have a say in how we surprise the universe, how we surprise God, how we surprise ourselves, and how we surprise each other. What if one, one of the questions the universe is asking is, does the God of traditional theology exist? This is obviously an exploration that Bill and I have done in conversation, that he's done. It might be time to start questioning that traditional notion of God. I realize this is frightening for some. It, immediately, I think we want to fill in the gaps with something. We want to fill that hole. Carl Sagan, famous scientist and atheist, says, we have created a God of the gaps. In other words, anything we can't explain, which includes God, is attributed to God. <laughs> At one time, we couldn't explain lightning and thunder. And then it was volcanoes and earthquakes, and these became the explanations where, well, God must be angry, or God must need something from us in order to quiet that volcano. I've never thrown a virgin into a volcano, so I'm not sure if it works, but my guess is probably not, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> but we, we use the word God because we can't explain these phenomenons. After a while, we can explain them, and we gave them to science. We didn't give them back to God. Or perhaps... It's just also that God is evolving, just like everything else, just like us. This longing to fill in the gaps, I think, is so fundamentally human. An amateur poet wrote Carl Sagan a letter with a kind of poem in it. My kind didn't really slither out of the tidal pool, did we? God, I need to believe you created me. We are so small down here. Yeah, she put, points at something really fundamental, I think, this longing to hold on, this longing to feel tethered, our fear of our smallness, and a fear of our insignificance. But Carl Sagan says, if we really are just matter, the stuff of stars intricately assembled, is this demeaning? Even if there is nothing in here but atoms that make up our hearts, that make up our minds, that make up our bodies, does this make us less? Or does that make matter so much more? What a beautiful thought. It's not that we become less by being like everything else. It's that we become more by being just like everything else, and yet uniquely ourselves. Sagan wrote a book called The Varieties of Scientific Experience, kind of in response to early psychologist and philosopher William James's book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. I've been listening, or I've been reading one and listening to the other of these at the same time, which is a kind of mind-bending experience, but really rich. And in, their both way, in both of their own ways, they're trying to point at truths. There's room for awe in science, says Sagan, and there's room for reality in religion, says James. Both are encounters with mystery. James wrote of mystical experiences, the universe has a divine soul of order whose soul is moral, 
being also the soul within the soul of man. And Sagan also suggests that the God of traditional theology is an earthbound God, one that is human-centered and too small for cosmic reality. He's an atheist, which means he doesn't attribute the workings of the universe to an omnipotent cosmic soup-stirring God, but nevertheless has a sense of awe and what's going on around him and a deep sense of mystery and wonder. He points to the values that many religions uphold, love, humility, compassion. He goes on to say, humility is the only just response and confrontation with the universe which means we have the opportunity to grow in this divine attribute every single day. Meister Eckhart, 12th century mystic, wrote, if I spent enough time with the tiniest creature, even the caterpillar, I would never have to prepare another sermon. So full of God is every creature. The universe speaks in sermons, and our feeble but very hopeful minds are just trying to find the words and images big enough to describe our experience here. So it's only that we need to gaze at the stars, the immense sky, to behold an impossibility. It is difficult to talk about the universe having emotions like, oh, the universe is hopeful or it's full of love. But it's that much more difficult to talk about it without emotion because it is so astounding. The place where we live is amazing. I love that quote, I only have to watch a caterpillar to know that. Sagan said the universe is not responsive to the human's ambitious expect expectations, but it is designed to sustain observers. It's not about us, but we can be about it. Maybe that's what it means to be human, to be about life, to be about hope, to be so about something vaster than vast. We are the way light enters the universe, says poet K. Ryan and wounds are the place where the light enters us. To hope, again, requires such a deep understanding of this tethering of hope and hurt. K. Ryan, poet, wrote, we say pinhole, a pinhole of light. We can't imagine how bright more of it could be, the way this much defeats night. It almost isn't fair, whoever poked this, with such a small act to vanquish blackness. I wonder if it's freeing to us or threatening to consider that God is far bigger than we can imagine, much more than a pinhole, much more than a single solar system or a single planet or a single galaxy even. And therefore, we too might be capable of much more than we imagine. Even though we're small in comparison to this vaster than vast cosmos, even though we have been here for half a second, maybe not even that long, compared to the beginning of time 14 billion years ago. That's measurable time. Again, we don't know what happened first. We don't know what happened before the first. But we are each a single pinprick of light through which life and love and creativity can pour forth. Mary Oliver writes, sometimes I spend all day trying to count the leaves on a single tree. To do this, I have to climb branch by branch and write down the numbers in a little book. So I suppose, from their point of view, it's reasonable that my friends say, what foolishness. She's got her heads in the cloud again. But it's not. Of course I have to give it up. But by then, I'm half crazy with the wonder of it, the abundance of the leaves, the quietness of the branches, the hopefulness of my effort. And I am in that delicious and important place, 
roaring with laughter, full of earth praise. It is absurd, of course, to think we can go out and count every single leaf on a tree. Just as absurd as it is to think we can count every single star in the sky. New ones are being born all the time, old ones are dying. Did y'all read that uh, Orion is losing one of its brightest stars, Betelgeuse? It's fading and fading, and who knows, maybe billions of years from now, maybe tomorrow, it'll explode. And it will no longer be part of Orion's belt. Yeah, I don't know what he'll wear, but that's, <laughs> here we go. So it is absurd to think we can count these immensities. It's also maybe a little OCD to try it, um, but to be in awe of it, in the smallness of ourselves and the largeness of this existence is extraordinarily hopeful. It's worth celebrating, I think, with wild abandon that we are even here at all. Here's where Carl Sagan and William James match up. James writes about the powerful experience of the Holy Spirit moving through a person. The Holy Spirit leaves a person changed. Sagan writes about the power of realizing the universe is coercing through us. The universe is constantly changing. Thus, we are too. Nothing is constant. This is probably the only capital T truth I can arrive at. Everything changes. Nothing is, nothing is certain. <laughs> and that is true. <laughs> not you, not me, not the cosmos, not God. Certainly, the only truth is change. Bell Hooks wrote, even the shape of knowledge is constantly changing. And to change social injustices, we need to remain open to these new shapes of knowledge, these new ways of learning. If we want to grow ideas of God to fit into the expansive cosmology, it requires us to be in continual evolution. And Bell Hook says in revolution. And revolution is what keeps small d democracy alive, to be in constantly pushing it to be better. It's time for us to equate our theologies with larger reality. And if our theologies govern our personal and political truths, then larger theologies begin to shape our hearts. And suddenly, we're living inside of our enlarged hearts and enlarged hope. It feels really good to hold on to something that's true. One-fourth plus one-fourth equals a half, <laughs> right? It feels secure and, dare I say, pretty safe. But I have challenged in here that maybe life isn't always about safety. Maybe it's about hoping nevertheless, being in that moment of hope and keeping us in pursuit. Think about the horse chasing the carrot, you know, in a racetrack. The horse never actually catches the carrot, just like the greyhound with the bunny. If he catches the bunny, what is he going to do? He's going to stop. So hope is kind of like the, the bunny, just right there and just maybe a little bit ungraspable, but also something worth, worthy of pursuit. I believe we, like the greyhound was born to run, I think we are born to hope. I think hope is shaped like a spiral. So not a circle, but something that expands outward and upward. It's generative. It creates new. Though all things are born of circles, as Natalie Merchant sang, things expand in spirals. In fact, it is thought that only spiral galaxies can support life. So if we have a circular galaxy or a flat galaxy, it can't support life based on what we know about physics. We don't know that for sure because we've never gotten far enough away to see if there's any other life anywhere else. Carl Sagan, who, again, I've been sort of entrenched with, that was one of his lifelong pursuits. Did y'all know that? To pursue extraterrestrial life. And he never found it. We probably know about it if he did. We have lots of myths about it. But this idea that there are other spiral galaxies that exist, so maybe there's a possibility that there are other Earth-like planets that exist. Here's an example of spiral thinking. 
Remember this painting. The bird song begins inside the egg. What matters is not what came first, the chicken or the egg, but what emerges. Spiral thinking imagines the caterpillar as both cocoon and butterfly. Spiral thinking is the willingness to be transformed. And we, like the universe, are continually expanding toward unimaginable edges. I found this quote by Martin Luther King that said, I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the oughtness that forever confronts him. He believed in our oughtness. He believed that we were bigger than we, we were currently acting. So that's what kept him hopeful. That's what kept him doing the work. So where does this leave us with prayer or with God? To mention Michael Morwood's book, he explores some of these notions early in his book. What is prayer? What is God? What does it mean to pursue these questions when we know so much about cosmology, when we know so much about infinite space or the possibility of it? His book can be read cover to cover, but it also works a little bit like a meditation. We were just talking in the front. What does it mean to pray when we live inside of infinite space? It's hard. As you may have figured out, poetry is often like a prayer to me. I read it most days and use it as part of my spiritual practice when I'm not helping my kids with homework. Um, <laughs> it is essentially what I've offered up to you today is, is a prayer. This from Padre Gotuama. Have you all heard of him? He's uh, an Irish Catholic who is gay and cannot participate in the religion in an official capacity that he was born into. He went through all kinds of conversion therapy at the hands of other grown-ups in his life, and, and that broke him. But in that, he also found a kind of hope, a persistence. And what he does now, he didn't even give up the religion that gave him up. He, he teaches people about sacred storytelling. He teaches people about holding on to the root of the root of the self so that they can persist, so that they can stay alive and hopeful. So from his ashes, from a death of sorts, arises this ability to help others find something in themselves to hold on to. Prayer, he says it so much more beautifully. Irish accents are not one I also cannot imitate. Um, <laughs> prayer, like poetry, like breath, like our own names, has a fundamental rhythm in our bodies. It changes, it adapts, it varies from the canon. It sings, it swears, thank God. It is syncopated by the rhythm underneath the rhythm, the love underneath the love, the rhyme underneath the rhyme, the name underneath the name. The welcome underneath the welcome, the prayer beneath the prayer. So let us pick up the stones over which we stumble, friends, and build altars. Let us listen to the sound of breath in our bodies. Let us listen to the sounds of our own voices of our names, of our fears. Let us name the harsh light and soft darkness that surround us. Let's claw ourselves out from the graves we've dug. Let's lick the earth from our fingers. Let us look up and out and around. The world is big and wide and wild and wonderful and wicked. And our lives are murky, magnificent, malleable, and full of meaning. Oremus, let us pray. Lots of alliteration. I think my ninth grade English teacher would have been proud. 
On God, of course, there are also a multiplicity of answers. I didn't, can't even touch on it on those three slides that I showed you. William James says that simply to, simply to be alive is to acknowledge God. To, those two are one and the same. To be alive, I think, is hopeful. If we are still here, even if hanging on by a thread, we're holding on to something. We're not ready to let go yet. I kind of think we also need to rescue God back from ourselves. So maybe to restore God to this cosmic vastness, back to mystery, to non-being, as the mystics say, which is also to say to all being. God says, as if with a shrug of the shoulders, I am who I am. You figure it out. So let's figure it out. <laughs> God is open-ended and maybe a little bit coy. Again, like the bunny at the race the racetrack, just kind of always there, but maybe just out of our grasp, and it keeps us pursuing. Just for grins, though, and because we're human, in need of answers and imagery, I'll explore this idea of God directly. In theology, there are essentially two ways of thinking about God. One is called apophatic, what God is not, and one is cataphatic, what God is. So we can kind of talk about it in two ways. An example of apophatic thinking by First-century mystic Dionysius the Aeropagite. The cause of all things is neither soul nor intellect, nor has it imagination, opinion, or reason, or intelligence. Nor is it reason or intelligence, nor is it spoken or thought. It is neither number, nor order, nor magnitude, nor littleness, nor equality, nor inequality, nor similarity, nor dissimilarity. It neither stands, nor moves, nor rests. It is neither essence, nor eternity, nor time. It is neither science, nor truth. It is not even royalty or wisdom, not one, not unity, not divinity or goodness, not even spirit as we know it. The truth so infinitely excels all of these. I think what he's saying is the truth is not man-made. God is not man-made. It's beyond people. It's beyond our thinking. That is true for the mysteries of the cosmos. That is true for the mysteries of theology. That is even true for the mysteries deep inside ourselves. Is It's beyond our grasp in some ways. To contrast, Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets, writes of what God is. This one is a, is a bit hard to fit on a slide, so I'll just read two stanzas. I don't know what God is exactly. This is her poem, The River Clarion, which is pictured behind me. But I'll tell you this. I was sitting in the river named Clarion on a water-splashed stone, and all afternoon I listened to the voices of the river talking. Whenever the water struck a stone, it had something to say. And the water itself, and even the mosses trailing under the water, and slowly, very slowly, it became clear to me what they were saying. Said the river, I am part of this holiness. And I too, said the stone, and I too, whispered the moss beneath the water. I'd been to the river before, a few times. Don't blame the river that nothing happens quickly. You don't hear such voices in an hour or a day. You don't hear them at all if selfhood has stuffed your ears. And it's difficult for us to hear anything anyway through all the traffic, the ambition. If God exists, he isn't just butter and good luck. He is also the tick that killed my dog, Luke. Said the river, imagine everything you can imagine, and then keep going. 
Imagine how the lily, who may also be part of God, would sing to you if it could sing. If you would pause to hear it, and how are you so certain it doesn't sing anyway? If God exists, he isn't just churches and mathematics. He's the forest, he's the desert, he's the ice caps that are dying. He's the ghetto and the museum of fine arts. He's Van Gogh, I know I messed up the German there, and Allen Ginsberg and Robert Motherwell. He's the many desperate hands, cleaning and preparing their weapons. He's every one of us, potentially. The leaf of grass, the genius, the politician, the poet. And if this is true, isn't it something very important? Yes, it could be that I am a tiny piece of God in each of you too, or at least of his intention and hope, which is a delight beyond measure. I don't know how you get to suspect such an idea. I only know that the river keeps going. It wasn't a persuasion. It was all the river's own constant joy, which was better by far than any lecture which was comfortable, exciting, and unforgettable. This poem is like six more stanzas long, and she keeps going on about all that God is. Essentially, that it is all of this. I'll let you decide which is true, what God isn't, what God is, somewhere in between. I can only be sure that it's beyond our imagination. I, and t even though I want to get away from traditional notions of God, I tend to intentionally use the word a lot. Some has suggested that we give it up entirely just to maybe come fill the gaps with something else. But the reason I use it a lot is I kind of want to saturate the word with a lot of possibilities, with a lot of ideas, so that we don't stay limited and we don't stay small. It's an idea of thinking that there's expansion, that the root is actually in mystery. I also tend to refer to it as it because I don't see God as a he, a she, or a person at all. It just is, just like everything else around us. Hope is both mysterious and visible. It is in the caterpillar, in the blossoms of the redbud tree. I love redbud trees in the spring. It is in the last breath of a life well lived and in the first breath of one coming into the world. It is in the bird song and in the egg. In hope we find all of these things and we just might get a glimpse of God or of the universe if we're looking for it. Maya Angelou read this poem on the day of Obama's inauguration, who ran, if you recall, on a campaign of hope. And I think that no matter how we voted that year, the mere fact of his presidency was hopeful to our nation because it said, okay, something has shifted. And I know at least three biracial little boys who came into the world where they could actually imagine themselves president for the first time in history. We are not finished with racism or with modern day slavery in the form of human trafficking, not by a long shot. We've got a lot of work to do. But January 20, 2009 was a moment of long awaited hope for many. Her poem traces the arc of evolutionary history and concludes that the horizon leans forward, offering you space to place new steps of change. Here on the pulse of this fine day, you may have the courage to look up and out upon me, the rock, the river, the tree, your country, no less to Midas than the mendicant, no less to you now than the mastodon then. Here, on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes, into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning.
So remember that no matter who you are or where you go this week, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Thanks, guys. <laughs>